Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. That's one passage. Put your finger there or put your little ribbon marker there. And also turn to 18, 15 to 20. We're going to be in both passages this morning and we're going to float between the two. So mark one and then turn to the other. Mark probably the 18, 15 to 20, and, and turn to the 16, 13 to 20. So 16, 13 to 20, and 18, 15 to 20. As we finish up uh, the Gospel of Matthew, we're spending five weeks or so uh, just reviewing the biggest concepts that flow throughout the book and really seeking to apply them to our own personal lives as Christians, but then also to our congregation as a whole. We saw uh, two weeks ago that, that one of the biggest points of emphasis that Jesus gives to his disciples is this exhortation to, uh, toward holiness, to live lives that are holy, to see the fruit of the Spirit growing within us. And, and, and as he enters the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are the, and he gives a list of, all the people that are blessed, that are citizens of the kingdom of God. And this, we said, forms a kind of a character list of the traits that should be growing within us, that are true and becoming truer over time of those that are citizens of his kingdom. And you'll remember that as he comes on the scene, as Jesus comes on the scene at the beginning of Matthew in chapter 4, he begins preaching uh, sermons of repentance. And it's all meant to bring conviction of sin and, and tell the people that are listening that you need to repent of sin. And then he gets into the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, and he says this in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So that's discouraging for, for all of us. Listening, But then it gets more discouraging as he gets to the end of chapter 5. And in verse 48 he says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So if the first wasn't discouraging enough, you get to 48 and you go, Man, I, I'm, I'm really discouraged now. Because if that's what's required for the kingdom of heaven, I'm afraid I fall short of the kingdom of heaven. The application to a congregation of people that are studying the book of Matthew then is to strive toward personal holiness, toward what I said a couple weeks ago is kingdom ethics. But you see, there's a problem within that command. Hey, strive toward holiness. Striving toward holiness was not what Jesus required. He said perfection was what was required. I don't think anyone in this room, I hope, no one in this room, is striving toward wickedness. That you're, you're going home and you're thinking to yourself, how can I be more wicked today than I was yesterday? I'm doubting that there's anybody in here, even if you're not a believer in Jesus, that really thinks that, or that is striving in that direction. And yet, you and I both sin. We, re we realize that every time we wake up in the morning, or open the Bible and read it and see what the Lord requires of holiness. We, we see clearly that we fall short. So we're left with, if we just left it there, we, we basically walk away with the message, hey, strive towards holiness, and yet you're going to see sin all the time. We're just left with the message, hey, just try harder. 
There you are, a sinner. Just try harder tomorrow than you did today. So you go home and you, you try harder, and yet you realize that there's this habit of sin that still remains. Just to be clear, try harder is not the gospel. You understand that? Try harder is not the content of the gospel. In fact, you might say that the theme of the Old Testament might best be summarized as what happens when sinful humanity tries harder. That's what you get. There's other things we find out that are actually necessary for you to strive toward holiness and it actually be effective. That you can actually see holiness growing within you. And yet at the same time realizing, I'm still going to be dealing with my sin every day, as long as I'm alive. And the first thing that's going to be required is that I have to be forgiven of my sin by God. That's clear. I have to be forgiven of it. He's got to wipe the ledger clean. He has to justify me. That's the first thing. It has to happen. I've got to be forgiven of sin. But then second, I have to actually have God's Holy Spirit within me to animate me toward good works. Because Paul is very clear in Romans, without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's not going to happen. You cannot do it. That's why the, the exhortation, strive harder, try harder, doesn't work. Because people that don't have God's Spirit within them can try all day and they're never going to please God. Because without faith it is impossible to please God. So last week we saw what happens to a person when genuine conversion takes place. When someone is, is genuinely converted. That is, God's Spirit first takes up residence inside the person. And then he or she, subsequent to that, begins to bear fruit. And the first fruit that we see is faith. They believe in Jesus. The second fruit we see of that is repentance of sin. They repent of their sin. They confess it. You, you see, those are products of the faith. You can't work hard enough on the front end to earn the salvation. You can't walk enough aisles, you can't pray enough prayers, you can't do enough things to earn God's favor. That doesn't happen. His Spirit has to take up residence in you, changing your heart of stone into a heart of flesh and having, giving you the desire to obey. At that point then comes all of the fruit that the Spirit then produces from your life. And what does God say that those fruits are? The fruit of the Spirit dwelling within you. Well, Jesus says at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, it makes you poor in spirit. You begin to mourn over your sin, the sin of the world around you. You become meek or grow in meekness. You hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's not you. That's the Spirit living within you that's producing that. In the same way Paul says in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, that the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
all of those things begin to grow in you steadily over time. Why? Because you're trying harder? No. Because the Spirit has taken up residence within you and is producing that fruit in you. These things grow steady over time. So how does one's righteousness then, as Jesus would say, exceed that of the Pharisees? Now, I don't know if you know this, the Pharisees of Jesus' day are thought of to be the holiest of the holy. And so when Jesus says this, your righteousness has to exceed theirs, there's an immediate intimidation factor on the people that are listening to him. They're all going, well, the gig's up for me, because I'm not that. I'm a tax collector, or I'm a whatever, and there's, I'm certainly not a Pharisee. They have the Bible memorized, you know? So how does one's righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees? Well, according to Jesus, and if you read the rest of Matthew, Jesus doesn't actually think that highly of the Pharisees. And why is that? Because their insides don't match their outsides. That's the reason. Their heart doesn't match what they're saying on the outside. And that is the problem. And that is how the Christian, or the one who has the Spirit of God living in him, how his righteousness can exceed that of the Pharisees. Because his insides have actually been changed. His heart has actually been changed so that he actually desires to please God. It's not an outward conformity to some set of rules or behaviors. We're not asking you to come into the church and pretend like you've got it all together. That's not what we're doing. That's not what we're doing here. That's not what we are as Christians. No, it's an inward heart change that has been conformed to the very desires of God Himself. That's genuine conversion, where your heart's desire is earnestly to please God, which is now true of you in conversion, as it was true of Jesus Himself, who also had the Spirit of God within Him. So the Holy Spirit begins producing this fruit in your life, and thus... Your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. And then Jesus obviously provides for your justification by dying on the cross, suffering the wrath of God in your place. And so you've been justified before God, where before you stood guilty before God, now, by virtue of Christ's blood, you stand not guilty. So you have the Spirit of God within you, based on your conversion, you have been justified by Christ's blood. And these two foundational pieces are what should be true of every Christian within the church. So in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to use these two foundational realities. Your justification by, his, by Christ, your forgiveness of sin, in other words. Your declared righteous. And the indwelling Holy Spirit. To get to the point which is the foundation of the church. The pillars of the church. What the church is actually built on. And this is one of the most important pieces of the whole gospel of Matthew. It's the center point of the gospel of Matthew. And it tells us what we as a church body are actually doing together. What is our purpose? What are we here for? So with that in mind, let's read our passages this morning from Matthew 16, started first starting in Matthew 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, 
Who do people say the son of, that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now look at Matthew 18, 15-20. If your brother sins against you, Go, to him, go, uh, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Let's pray for our word this morning that we might understand it. Heavenly Father, the word that you have put before us is challenging, it's daunting, it requires us to think, it requires us to be attentive, it requires us to remove distraction to some degree from our life so that we might understand it and obey it. And so we pray for help in those regards. We have many things that are vying for our attention. We have many things that are vying for our heart's attention. So we pray that you would focus our attention on your word this morning, that we might apply it to our life, that we might be um, stewards of your word, we might be careful obeyers of your word. And no matter how difficult and how hard it is, I pray that you empower us to do it by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. These two passages in Matthew obviously have some things in common but they're also a good bit different. And, and first, there is that statement that you probably is probably ringing in your ears now because it is definitely the strangest of the statements that, it, that he makes here about whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And the first time that Jesus says it there in Matthew 16, he's talking to Peter himself, and he says, you. He, he says, you, Peter... Whatever you, Peter, bind on earth, whatever you, Peter, loose on earth. Then in chapter 18, he says something very similar, but he changes it slightly, and he says, whatever y'all, he's talking to the disciples, whatever y'all, I wish they just said y'all for the plural you, it would just make everything much easier. Um, whatever y'all bind on earth, whatever y'all uh, uh, loose on earth. And, but outside of that change, the statement, that little sentence, is pretty much the same. The biggest difference between the two passages, of course, is in the first passage in 16, 
Jesus is responding to something Peter has said. When Jesus asks Peter, who do you say that I am? Or asks the disciples, who do y'all say that I am? And Peter, the spokesman for the group, speaks up first and he says, we think you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He doesn't say we think, he says you are. And then Jesus responds to what Peter says by saying, I'm going to build my church on this. You are Peter, his name means the rock, and Petros means the rock. And he says, on this rock, I will build my church. And then, of course, the second one in chapter 18 is in a slightly different context, it seems, where th- there's a debate or an argument about somebody's sin. They go to him and they, they try to bring him to repentance, and this person has refused repentance. And, the, and it's in the context of removing this person from their assembly, cutting this person out of their life or, or out, of the, out of the life of the church. But I think it's important that we understand what's being said in these two passages because these have been taken to, with wild interpretations. Now, I do want to remind you that we're in a review portion of Matthew. I preached both of these passages probably years ago. I don't even remember what the date was off the top of my head, but it's been a long time ago. But we went, we're not going to go through every single detail of these passages. There's a lot of details in them. We're not going to go through every single one because I've already preached those. You can find those on the website if you have any questions about them. All I'm trying to do now is help us understand how these things actually connect to us as individual Christians and us as a church body because these are massive concepts And when we actually begin to apply them to our lives and the life of our church together, we'll begin to really formulate what our purpose is together. So this morning, I'm going to be focusing a lot more on the similarities between these two passages than any of the differences. And of course, if you're interested in hearing more about how these concepts flesh themselves out, Wednesday night, we just started a study on the church. 6.15 in this room, you can ask questions and you can hear all about it. So I digress. Um, look at first at, at chapter 16. Peter gives this crystal clear confession there in verse 16. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is the very center of the gospel of Matthew. It's the very middle of the gospel of Matthew. And how do we know that? Because everything in the book, first of all, hinges on that confession. Everything in the book hinges on people recognizing this is the Christ, the son of the living God. And from that moment on, from the time Peter voices this out loud on, Matthew actually tells us in verse 21 that from then on, Jesus began to tell them more plainly about who he was. He began to speak in more clear terms. So the disciples who have seen him calm the storm and calm the seas and walk on water and then asked, who is this? that even the winds and the seas obey, now have a crystal clear clarity as to who Jesus is. Do you see that transition? Earlier on, they're going, who is this? And now when he asks them several chapters later, who am I? They're able to say with crystal clear clarity, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. But look at how Jesus responds to Peter. Don't overlook this. Look at verse 17. Look at how Jesus responds to him. He says, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell 
shall not prevail against it. This is often, right here, the most misunderstood part of Matthew 16. Because Peter's just made this astounding confession, and Jesus says, you're Petros, which means rock, and, and, and then he says, on this rock I will build my church. And, and here's where a Roman Catholic goes, heirs, I think, in the interpretation of this passage. They go, Peter was the rock. Peter was given the keys to the kingdom. And so on Peter, the foundation of the church was, bi- or the church was built on the foundation of Peter. And so what the Pope is, is essentially the Bishop of Rome, who is a, 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 by faith a descendant of Peter, and he has had the keys of the kingdom handed down to him in faithful succession by Peter, the Catholics say. And I think they give Peter a lot of credit there, and they err in that capacity. They essentially use this verse to justify all the authority of the Pope and everything else like that. But I think also evangelicals err in our interpretation of this, because we get to this passage, and, and we say, and it's probably in reaction to the Roman Catholics, we go, nope, it has nothing to do with Peter whatsoever, and it is just the confession that he gives right here. And the confession that he gives is you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that is it. That is the foundation that Jesus is building his church on. But I think both have pieces where they are right, and both have massive pieces where I think they're wrong. First of all, it's not merely a confession that Jesus is building his church on. Peter is important. Do you notice that every time the disciples speak, that it's Peter is the one that's voicing on their behalf? You notice that? You notice that in Acts, when they go out and they start preaching sermons, who's the one preaching? Peter. You notice that he's taking the lead in all of this? Do you notice that in chapter 16, Jesus actually says, I will give you, Peter, singularly, the keys to the kingdom. All right, whether you think he's building his church on the foundation of Peter or not, you have to admit, Peter's kind of important in the whole thing, right? So, Paul even affirms of the apostles in general, he says in Ephesians 2, 19-20, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the, who? Apostles and prophets. Christ himself being the cornerstone. Christ is the cornerstone of the foundation, but there it is, the foundation of the apostles. They have an important role to play in the life of the church. However, placing a ton of emphasis on Peter here in 16 ignores the fact that just two chapters later, Jesus is going to give basically the same keys to the kingdom and the same authority to the rest of the apostles. But not just to the rest of the apostles. Jesus is also going to give that authority to the church. Do you see that? He says, go to the man. If he still doesn't repent, take two or three more. If he still doesn't repent, who do you tell it to? The church. Tell it to the rest of the church. So he, if you place all the importance on Peter, you ignore the fact that he gives the authority to the apostles and to the rest of the church in just a couple of chapters. But then I want you to see in verse 23 of chapter 16, something interesting happens. Do you see that Jesus calls Peter a name? What does he call him? You got it there in 23? What does he call him? 
Satan. Well, that's not a good start to him, the foundation piece, right? Okay? And I think it's, it's a little bit humorous. Not that it's funny or anything like that, but it, it's a little bit humorous because the person goes from the teacher's pet in one passage just a few verses later, uh, he's the puppet of the devil, you know, which is, yeah, obviously not a good start to his ministry. But the connection between these two passages is, is vital to you understanding what Jesus is actually saying here. And it tells us everything about what Jesus is actually building his church on. Is it Peter? Is it his confession? What is it? Well, it's not merely Peter that Jesus is building his church on. It's not merely the confession that Jesus is building his church on. Go back to verse 17. It is, he says there, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed it to you. In this moment of crystal clarity for Peter, why does he have such clarity? Because at this moment, the Spirit of God is speaking straight through his mouth. The Spirit of God has opened his eyes to actually see with abundant clarity who Jesus really is. It's the Simon Peter who is not led by flesh and blood, but is led by his Father who is in heaven. It's the Spirit-indwelled apostles led by Peter who form the foundation of the church on which you and I also stand. That's the reason we're part of the same house. Why? Because we like Peter and we like the way he preached? No. We're part of the same house built on the foundation of the apostles with Christ being the cornerstone because the thing we all have in common is being led by the same Spirit that opened Peter's eyes right here to see with crystal clear clarity who Jesus really is. That's what we all have in common. That is the foundational piece that Jesus is building His church on. Yes, Peter's taking a lead in that. Yes, his confession is key to that. But it's the fact that the Spirit of God is driving the confession. That's the rock that he's building the church on. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church going to be a group of people who are driven by the Spirit. You notice, right after he calls him Satan, what he says to him, he ends that whole section by saying, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What is Peter doing here? He's trying to stop him from going to the cross. And it's at this moment that Jesus says, that is not what I'm building my church on. That is in league with the devil. That's mankind. You're setting your mind on things here, not on the things of God. That's the opposite of what I'm building my church on. So when you get to chapter 18 and verse 19, go ahead and flip over there. Jesus says, Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. You, you understand the word for there in, in verse 20 means 
The reason that that's true, the reason that what you ask of my Father in heaven will be given to you, the reason that that's true is because I'm there among you. Now, is Jesus saying that he's bodily going to be there among them? No. How is he going to be there among them? He's going to be there among them in spirit. That is the thing that's going to unite them. We see these promises throughout Scripture, and we often get confused by them because in places like James and, and various other places, will say, and even Jesus in Matthew 7 says, look, whatever you ask in my name, just ask it, and my, da- my, my dad, my father will give it to you. That seems like a blanket promise. How do, we, how do I understand that? Well, the rest of the New Testament goes on to explain when you ask in accordance with the will of the Father. How do I ask in accordance with the will of the Father? The Spirit of God that dwells within me leads me to ask in accordance with the will of the Father. That's how prayer works, is the Spirit within me leads me to ask for those things and leads me toward those things. So here you have in chapter 18, the apostles or the church itself that they're shepherding goes to remove someone who is in unrepentant sin. How is it that they can trust that what they're doing is actually in accordance with the will of the Father? It's because Jesus' Spirit is there amongst them. Why? Because that's what He's building His church on. That the Spirit is going to come into the lives of the people that are within the church and transform them so that they know how to conform their lives to His will, so that they can actually work to please Him, so that they can actually do what is obeying the Father's commands. His own Spirit is amongst them. In 18, it's similar to Jesus saying that you can trust this because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven who has. So, that all being said, maybe you're tracking with that. Hopefully you are, but maybe you're not. So let's sum up what we're seeing here. Jesus is granting some kind of authority to the apostles and, in 18, to the church that is contingent upon the leadership of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Agree? He's granting some authority, but the contingency for that authority is that the Holy Spirit be in them and be guiding them and leading them. But then the question is, what is their authority? What authority is it that they actually have? He says in 16 to Peter, he calls it the keys to the kingdom. And then he says in both 16 and 18, he explains what those keys to the kingdom are. And he, he doesn't do us a whole lot of help here, I think. But he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The first thing that we've got to get out of the way is a translational issue here. The, the translation that most of us have is whatever you bind, it says, will be bound. Is that what you have in your, in your Bibles? Whatever you bind will be bound. Whatever you loose will be bound. But if you notice, probably in all your translations, you've got a little marker right there by will be bound. And it might say something like, whatever you bind will have been bound. It says, or could be, will have been bound, which I think is the actual words that Jesus uses here. Whatever you bind will have been bound. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that his presence is going to be amongst them forever. 
He promises this even in the Great Commission. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He is go- his presence is going to ever abide with His church through the Helper, the Holy Spirit, that's coming along to dwell within them. So He's forever going to be leading His church. And then His church is going to be led by His apostles, collectively reflecting the will of heaven because of the Spirit dwelling within them. Right? Particularly when it comes to, we see in 18, removing someone from the church or letting someone into the church. In other words, what he's saying here is, God is ever the judge, jury, and executioner. He always will be. He always has been. There's never a time when he is not the judge, jury, and executioner. But as his church witnesses amongst its members, against any one of its members, a perpetual lack of repentance. That's what's going on in 18. right? Someone is, is in sin. They're confronted by sin. They refuse repentance from sin several times after much patience. They're told even to the church, goes to them and says, repent from sin, and yet they persist in an unrepentant lifestyle. When the church led by the Spirit of God, witnesses a perpetual lack of repentance in the life of some Christians who are professing Christ. When they do that, they're to make visibly clear what the will of heaven is. So it's not as though God is looking down at earth and going, wait, what did they decide? Gabriel, what what was it that they said? They removed that guy from membership or not? Oh, they did? Well, let's clear up the ledgers then. It's not as though heaven is waiting for the decision on earth to determine what the decision would be. It's that the people on earth, His church, who are led by His Spirit, as they make a decision on the membership of somebody, on the excommunication of somebody, on a host of other decisions that a church might make, when they make that decision together, they are reflecting the will of heaven. So when the church collectively recognizes unrepentant sin in the life of a member, they say about this person that he or she is not a member of the body of Christ. He says, let them be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. That is, a pagan. That is what he calls bound in heaven. Spirit of God that leads us to repentance, in other words, doesn't appear to be within this person because this person persists in unrepentance. He is obstinate in his sin. So the church then, when they make that declaration over somebody, is is making visible what is a spiritual or eternal reality. But you understand, Jesus is saying this works the other way around too. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. In other words, when you include someone in membership, when you say about that person, they seem to be, they, they show evidence of the indwelling spirit within them, and you confer on that person the title of member, what you're doing as a church body is reflecting a spiritual reality that they are loosed in heaven. They are a member of the body of Christ. They seem to have the spirit of God within them. In other words, their eternal state seems to not be one that is bound, but one that is loosed. That's what's being said here. 
Now, I think for most people, that sounds really intimidating. For me, it sounds intimidating. Maybe a little bit scary. Maybe even a little bit overly churchy. Well, it, it kind of should. But I want you to see this just quickly in chapter 18 through Jesus' eyes. Look in verse 10, chapter 18. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray... Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he, finds, if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now this is a parable that most of us in this room have read before, have heard before, and probably become familiar with before. But it's in the context of what we've just been talking about. You realize that? That the whole church discipline, church membership, confronting someone in sin, keys to the kingdom, binding, loosing, all of those really complex things and complicated things and things that make us a little bit uncomfortable, all of those things are in the context that we, of what we just read of someone leaving the 99, the shepherd leaving the 99 sheep and going after the one whole thing is set within that context of God's shepherd leaving the sheep and going in search for the one that's going astray. So what does he say the responsibility of the shepherd is in this passage? It's to go after the one who has wandered. But then Jesus puts it in really practical terms, going from verse 14 to verse 15. Look at it. Put your eyes on it in the text. Going from verse 14 to verse 15, he transitions to really practical terms, and he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. So, so, so what is the wandering? Your brother sinning against you. What is the shepherd going after the sheep? Go and tell him his fault. How does Jesus understand this whole nature of going after someone and telling them their fault? Telling them what sin they've committed? And then, if necessary, taking two or three more? And then, if necessary, taking an entire church how does Jesus see that? As properly shepherding the people of God. As caring for the sheep within a congregation. So this progression that we see in these passages, going from, binding, going from telling someone their sin to binding and loosing and all those things, it sounds intimidating to us, but it's actually the way that a church and its elders pursue God's sheep that are prone to wander into sin. That's the way we as a church body care for one another, is we actually lovingly confront one another in sin. And in the case of someone who has God's Spirit within them, sometimes the confrontation isn't enough when it's one-on-one. Sometimes it needs to be two or three more before they realize what sin they're in the midst of. And sometimes not even then. Sometimes it's an entire church coming after them and saying, look, this is sinful. You need to repent and come back. For the church's part, 
this is actually what it means to guard the gospel. This is how you as a church body guard, shepherd, protect the gospel. How you keep the word of Christ from being abused in the mouth of the community around us. That's how we as a church body do it. We watch the backs of the other members around us when they're prone to wander into sin. That's how we guard the gospel. The good news of salvation is not just that Jesus died on the cross. You understand that? Although it is that. The good news, the gospel, is not just that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. Although it is that too. The good news of the gospel is not just that he's coming back one day to judge the living and the dead. Although it is certainly that too. It's also that in the church, he has given us his spirit that we might actually live to please God now. That's good news. That is the good news of the gospel. It's not just that you have been forgiven of sin. It's not just that he's coming back. It's not just that he rose from the dead and that we can have eternal life. It's that right now, God's Spirit can take up residence within you and that you can live a life that is pleasing to God right now at this very moment. That is good news. And that in you will grow love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That the Spirit of God will begin to produce in you meekness and poverty of spirit and mournfulness progressively over time. And within our members then, the Spirit of God is dwelling within us. That's what it means to actually be a member of the body of Christ. That the Spirit is dwelling within you and producing the character of Christ. So what that means is that we then as church members have a responsibility to guard the gospel. How do we protect the good news of the gospel as it's proclaimed in the world around us. How do we protect that? By ensuring that the people that are within our collective body have the Spirit of God within them. That is by encouraging them toward good works through the preaching of the gospel. That is encouraging them toward repentance whenever they sin. And that is seeing the church as a whole come back to repentance or each individual member come back to repentance when they're confronted by sin. And we trust that that will happen because the Holy Spirit that is dwelling within this person. Now, I get it. You put Matthew 16 out there, Matthew 18 out there on the sign, it's not the most attractive thing that's going to drive people into the pews. When you say we're preaching on church membership and church discipline, that's not the thing that keeps most people awake and that most people spend time thinking about. I get it. But you understand that this matters for our church, for Emmanuel Baptist Church. As Baptists, and as Southern Baptists in particular, we'll throw the name congregational rule out a lot. If you're around Baptists for any period of time, you'll hear congregational rule from time to time. And the way that gets translated in the minds of many people in our pews is that it gives us the right to majority rule over what temperature the air conditioner should be set at or how many paper clips we should buy on a yearly basis. When in reality, it has absolutely nothing to do with that. Believe it or not, 
There's really nothing in Scripture about a church's budget or how many paper clips or what temperature the air conditioner should be set at. This right here, Matthew 16, Matthew 18, is where congregational rule comes from. We believe that the Spirit so indwells each member of the congregation that that member has a right and an ability to determine who should be a member of the church and who should not be a member of the church. That is congregational authority. That's congregational rule. Most people don't know that. And if you ask them to defend where congregational rule comes from in Scripture, they wouldn't be able to do it. This is it. The congregation comes together. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when they come together to excommunicate somebody, Paul tells them, when you are gathered together in your assembly, hand this man over to Satan. The church has the authority to do that. These are not mere policy decisions that we're talking about here. Church discipline, church membership. It's not, this is how we run our church. That's not what this is. This is the only thing that separates this place from being a country club. That's it. It's how we guard the gospel. That, the Spirit, indwells the members of this church. That is the only thing that separates this place from becoming just the thing we do on Sunday morning. So it's tremendously important if we're going to apply the Gospel of Matthew and the very center of the Gospel of Matthew, which are these two passages, to Emmanuel Baptist Church, it's going to require tough and uncomfortable conversations that we're going to have to have with others. It's occasionally going to require a confrontation over sin from you to someone else. It's occasionally going to require you confront someone that's in the middle of doing something. It may occasionally require us as a church body collectively to do something. You realize attendance in church on a Sunday morning is required in Scripture. It's commanded in Scripture. How do you confront someone who refuses to come to church? That's an awkward conversation. It's uncomfortable. But it is one, as Christians, we have to have if we're going to guard the gospel. This matters for us as a church. But it also matters for you as an individual. You need to understand that in joining the church, in placing your membership at Emmanuel Baptist Church, you're foregoing your right to personal autonomy. You know that? You're foregoing the idea of coming in and being a wallflower and then shutting up and walking out the door as soon as everything's over and, and never talking to anybody, never letting anybody get to know who you are. You're foregoing that right altogether to personal autonomy. You are inviting people into your space. And for introverts, that's really hard. Let's be honest. I know some introverts. Got a lot of them in my family. It's very difficult to open up. But what you're doing by placing your membership in a church is you're foregoing your right to personal autonomy and you're opting instead for accountability. I want to be known. My heart is prone to wander and I need other Christians, spirit and dwelt Christians, to help guide me, help protect me, help shepherd me. 
So what that means then for you as individuals is that church attendance is one way to guard your life because you're putting yourself in the sphere of other Christians on a regular basis. Our building blocks on Sunday morning and our Sunday school classes to come in and hear the word taught and understand it and grow in it, all of those things are important for you to do and to take part in. Not because it's some legalistic requirement, because it makes you, you know, holier or makes you more approved by God. It's not. It's because it helps to guard your life. Our small groups are also fantastic at doing that. We meet in each other's homes. We talk about the application of Scripture. We deal with some of these more complex issues and some of the things that we actually face on a daily basis. It's not just about people that put flowers on your casket when you die. That's not strictly the purpose of a small group. It's also what happens between now and that time where you're confronted by sin, by people that know you, where you're encouraged when you're tempted to despair by people that know you. So your purpose as an individual, what this is telling you, what the Gospel of Matthew is applying to you, is saying, be with other Christians. Put yourself around other Christians. So that you too can be protected. So that the Gospel can be guarded. You not only play a vital role in their life, they do in yours as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know that often passages like these, sermons like these, topics like these can be difficult to hear, can be difficult to listen to, are difficult to think through complex topics. We require your help and we pray that you would give it to us. Help all of these things to sink in, but more importantly, I, I pray that all of these things that Matthew lays out, that Jesus lays out, that the Holy Spirit is teaching to us, would set in on our hearts and be the most important thing that we could possibly ever do. I pray that you would place before us as a church body the guarding of the gospel. That congregational authority would actually matter to us. That we would see it as our responsibility to watch after our neighbor and they us. Lord, make us that kind of congregation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.